I met a year ago on the Rock of Talk. This, of course, is Life Imagined Radio for a Saturday afternoon, just afternoon. We appreciate everybody joining us. We're live this afternoon. I'm about to uh, forward the phones, and uh, we'll take your calls. And we want you to stump the doctor on anything that uh, you might have a question about medically, even COVID-19. And again, that phone number to call or text in. 550-5500. That's 550-5500. Any and all calls will be taken. And before we get started with the uh, good doctor, we're going to tell you a couple of quick things and how you can uh, go in to see the doctor. And he is available right now. And all you have to do is uh, go to his clinic. And it's real easy, folks. It's an alternative health clinic, private pay clinic, non-opioid control, uh, control of chronic pain, alternative approaches to cardiovascular health, anti-aging and bioidentical hormones, memory and brain dysfunction issues, as well as second opinions. Mention me, The Rock of Talk, 25% discount. Pick up the phone and dial now, 878-0192. That's 878-0192. Dr. Summers, good morning. Good morning. What a beautiful, beautiful day in Albuquerque. Always so so fabulous to kind of look out on the fruited plain out there. Good grief. We, we are blessed as usual today. Well, we have 24 days left until the election. Eddie, are you primed? Are you ready? Uh, every day, 4 to 7, I'm doing it and then some. And we've got all of our articles running uh, directly at newsabq.com. Where we publish over 30 a day, and Dowd's doing all the writing for that. So, uh, yeah, we're we're heavy into it. We're ready. Uh, in fact, the election is basically already there. But uh, let's start off with some quotes, Dr. Summers, on uh, what you have uh, to, to think about this election. It's uh, crazy already. Yeah, I want to tap into the knowledge of the founders of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and start off with America's first physician, Dr. Benjamin Rush out of Philadelphia. He was the uh, physician for the carriage trade in Philadelphia, took care of Ben Franklin, and uh, at the time of his death took care of also uh, George Washington. He's known as the uh, first psychiatrist uh, in the country. And that was long before they had specialties in medicine. And he actually uh, did wonderful things like uh, free up and uh, take care of mental illness. But he, had, he was a great mind. He uh, came up with a saying, where there is no law, there is no liberty. Let's think about that for a second. Where there is no law, there is no liberty. And let's look at an example. If you have corruption of the law by bailing out people who riot and do property damage and raising money to let them out and give them a get-out-of-jail-free card. There is no penalty. There is no law. There is no liberty in these towns. And, of course, I'm thinking of Seattle and Portland as great examples of Dr. Benjamin Rush's knowledge. Where there is no law, there is no liberty. But let's move on a little bit. And let's get some wisdom from George Washington, our first president, who said, The truth will ultimately prevail where there is pains to bring it to light. Pains to bring it to light. Now, this is sort of addressing the fact that we have a corrupt media today. So what do we do about that? And the answer actually is something from what the Russians came up with when their press was corrupted by the Communist Party. And that's Samizdat. Samistat is actually uh, something we'll talk about a little later on in the show, 
But that's trusting in the word of mouth and self-publication and things like uh, social media to pick up pieces of truth because truth uh, really has disappeared from the mainstream press. It's disappeared certainly from cable news and it's disappeared from regular television. So George Washington's wisdom is you have to take pains to bring to light the truth. You can't just sit there and let CNN deliver the truth to you because as far as I can see, there is no truth in CNN. A third saying comes from Thomas Jefferson who said, if we guard against ignorance and remain free, it is the responsibility of every American to be informed, which means that as an American citizen, you have to go out there and seek the truth that George Washington was talking about. You have to start your own little chain of samistat. And finally, liberty cannot be preserved without a general knowledge among the people, and that comes from John Adams. John Adams, one of the terrific founding fathers of this country. Well, that brings us to the uh, the pandemic. The scamdemic. Well, before we get to that, uh, Dr. Summers, we've already got a couple of phone calls uh, on the line. 550-5500. That's 550-5500. Folks, remember to get your memory vitalizer in your life. Imagine you can pick it up at local stores, including Sharon Care Pharmacy in Belen, Durand Central Pharmacy, Sam's Regent Pharmacy, Highland Pharmacy, Best Buy Pharmacy, Manal Pharmacy, Evergreen Herbal Market, as well as Moses Country Store on 4th Street, the Village Apothecary in Cedar Crest as well. Vitasprings.com online. MemoryVitalizer.net online as well, and 800-606-0192. Stump the doctor. Caller, you're in the Kiva for Dr. Summers. Hi, Dr. Summers. Thanks for taking our calls. Um, I wanted to get a first aid kit together for um, in case, like, someone did start getting symptoms of COVID. And I bought a few things and wanted to know if they were helpful. One is the Desinide nasal spray. One is zinc tablets and low-dose baby aspirin. Is there anything else? What was the first item? I didn't quite understand. Budesonide nasal spray. Budesonide? Hmm. B with a B as in boy, budesonide. Oh, okay. Budesonide. Uh, is that a, uh, a low-grade steroid that you're, you've put together there? I mean, what exactly is that? Yeah, it's a nasal spray that you would use for congestion on your nose, itching, sneezing. Um, and I thought it was uh, what's in Rhinocort. Rhinocort. Yes. Yeah, and there was a physician in Texas who uh, reported great success with that, uh, Dr. Richard Bartlett. And uh, you add to that, you've got some zinc, did you say? Yeah, zinc tablets. And, and, I heard, um, and how much zinc? And uh, the zinc tablets are um, um, Zycam, okay. cold remedy, rapid melts. Yeah. Um, it looks like 11 milligrams. Okay, yeah, and uh, that's an amount of zinc. It's been altered from the original Zycam because Zycam in high doses will precipitate out and wipe out taste and smell. But uh, that uh, could be helpful as first symptoms. I also bought some zinc gummy bears that you like take. <laughs> gummy each night. bears, that's great. <laughs> yeah, they're gummies, but a little easier to take maybe and have a little sugar in there, so they're yummy. 
but to take nightly. And I heard baby aspirin, like in case you got COVID, like maybe to prevent blood clot in the lungs. Um, then this is well. There's another way to like, approach that, and that is with garlic. Yeah. Now, garlic gives you two. Uh, and by garlic, I generally like to recommend kaiolic, which is a Japanese product, which is aged garlic. It does two things. One, it acts like your baby aspirin, but the other thing is it's a potent antiseptic all by its own. It's antiviral, has antifungal properties, and antibacterial. To your list of things, I would add oil of oregano. There I specifically would say uh, get the product that's made by North American Herb Company, which is out of Chicago. That's about the only one I find you can put under your tongue and survive. The rest of them are so bitter and so uh, uh, obnoxious that you'll you'll never do it but once. But the oil of oregano from North American Herb, you can pick that up at uh, many of the uh, health uh, stores here in town. You put a drop or two of that under the tongue so it goes intravenous because it does penetrate through soft tissue very rapidly. Uh, it turns out echinacea as a tea is also very good in boosting the immune system and I'm going to plug my own product. Uh, Memory Revitalizer, as many, many of its 34 components are known to enhance the immune system. So the whole idea is get an immune system that's responsive when this variant of the common cold comes around. Again, I, I predict that by the end of the year, probably 50 to 70% of us, no matter how much you isolate people and stick masks on them, we will get this, this book. I hope that answers. Yeah, that's why I thought I could get some of this stuff ahead of time and be ready. All right, yes, thanks for the call. 550-5500, call you in the queue for Dr. Summers. Caller, that's you. Go ahead. Hi, um, I was wondering about... Can you turn down your radio in the back, please? Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. listening intently to what he was saying. Um... Uh, celiac disease. Um, my um, my doc says I don't have it after colonoscopy, but I continue to have really high numbers, like greater than 250. And uh, I just don't know what what it is. If it's not celiac, what else could it be? Uh, it could actually be food allergies. Uh, there are, and food allergies are things that most physicians we get no training in. And we're not encouraged if we go down this back alley. Uh, but there are a number of things in the American diet that, uh, quite frankly, are sort of toxic to the bowel and cause reactions that can look and act like celiac disease, or ulcerative colitis for that matter, uh, or Crohn's disease even. And uh, those allergies most frequently are dairy, wheat, corn, eggs, citrus. That would be oranges and limes and lemonades. And, of course, refined sugars. That's candy, soda, pies, cake, and cookies. And how you go about flushing those out, and, again, there are probably some naturopaths and physicians in the community that will do this, is put you on what's called an elimination diet. Which is, you know, the other way is, of course, skin tests to see if you're allergic to elephant hair number three or wheat. Uh, and uh, those tests are notoriously inaccurate. However, elimination diet, if you're courageous enough to do it, is inexpensive and incredibly accurate. You take 
all of those dairy, wheat, citrus, uh, refined sugars away for a three-week period, and then you introduce them one at a time. And when you get the bowel symptoms that you're having from what you call celiac disease, that's your allergen, and you take that out of your diet going forward. Does that answer? Mm, yes. And you can okay. do that by yourself. Uh, that's the wonderful part about it. Very inexpensive, very effective, but you have to have the courage to take uh, all of the ice cream out of your diet. <laughs> Sorry to right. say that. Right. Thank you so much. One other question. You know, I had gone to a um, you know acupuncturist, and um, he was working with the food allergies, but I don't really know that it helped that much. What, do, do you think I just? I mean, I went for a few months and. Uh, I wasn't really seeing results, but, um, I mean, is there something to that or, you know... Well, if uh, you're continually eating corn on the cob and you're allergic to corn, I don't care how good your acupuncturist is, you're going to have that food allergy. So the oh, elimination well, diet, uh, and even if you did the skin testing or some other means of uh, saying, oh, you're allergic to, uh, for example, uh, eggs... Uh, egg whites versus egg yolks, because those are two different allergies. Uh, you would have to avoid it to get rid of the symptoms. Oh, okay. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Good luck Appreciate with it. it. <laughs> <clears throat> couple of good calls there, and uh, we'll go to COVID-19. And an update there is uh, for pe preparation. You said 50 to 70% uh, doc. Is that correct? Yes. That's what we'll, we're, all, we're basically all going to get it. Oh, yeah. I think that by the end of the year, we'll all get it. And this virus is uh, highly infective, but it is very non-fatal. And the correct approach to it is clearly the Swedish approach, which is you isolate and protect the vulnerable people in nursing homes or the people with chronic illnesses of lungs, hearts, etc., and suppressed immune system. Those people you isolate. Everybody else, you absolutely get them engaged and get your economy going. Uh, Sweden is, in fact, I saw a post by someone who moved from Israel where they were quite uh, shut down to Sweden just to get a, a feel for freedom. But there are many unpublished facts about COVID-19. That's what I want to focus on today, Eddie. Okay, before we do that, the, yesterday was the largest spike that we have ever had. Before anybody goes full alarmist, I just want to furnish everybody with some statistics. The uh, the, the biggest uh, breakdown in Bernalillo County, the highest infections, are people between the ages of 20 to 29. Uh, roughly about, uh, uh, it's kind of interesting, 1,653 cases uh, as of yesterday in Bernalillo County. That is by, by, by far the highest age group, the second highest is uh, 1,270 for 30 to 39. So the people that are getting up, moving around, uh, those people are uh, sort of well-protected uh, going forward because uh, they don't have to worry about the coronavirus. And I think that speaks to the herd mentality that you're speaking of. Exactly. What the population you just outlined has about a 3 in 1,000 chance of getting fatally or, or seriously ill from this virus. In all likelihood, 85% of them will be free of symptoms or minimal symptoms, or they'll get over it like the common cold. And again, this virus is a variant of the common cold. 
550-5500. A couple more calls for Dr. William Summers. Uh, caller, you're in the Kiva. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, I have a question about memory revitalizer. Um, my wife was asking me the other day if we were getting vitamin D, since that's one of the recommendations to uh, help with the COVID virus. And I said, sure, you just check the label. And I was a little surprised I didn't see it on the label. Uh, is that a source of vitamin D, or do we need no. to supplement? No, uh, you need to supplement. Uh, at the time I put together the formulation in the 90s, Vitamin D was in everything from, uh, you know, Centrum Silver to uh, your prostate uh, preparations would stick vitamin D. It was everywhere. It was everywhere. And then you had Paul Harvey recommending Citricel. So it was uh, quite faddish to have it and just as an add-on drug. Furthermore, vitamin D is the only vitamin you need to get a blood level to see if you're getting adequate amounts. And that's hugely variant. I have some people who require 10,000 IU a day. I have some people get along quite nicely at 1,000 IU a day. And so you need to do a blood level. And uh, memory revitalizer doesn't come with a blood level. <laughs> so we felt that was a separate issue, and we did not put it in it. But it's a wonderful adjuvant, and especially, I mean, uh, you'll notice President Trump and his treatment added vitamin D to his regiment. Should you get it, and I forgot to give in the list the other lady, the vitamin D is 10, 20, 30,000 IU per day while you're having what would be a COVID flu crisis. Uh, real quick, I just want to jump in here. Obviously, the number one source for vitamin D is, is sunlight, and isn't that how it's manufactured uh, through the cholesterol production? Exactly. You start with cholesterol, run it through the skin, add some ultraviolet light from the sun, and you produce what's called D1. D1 then goes in circulation back, and it's uh, put back into uh, the kidneys, and it produces D2, which is the second metabolite. D2 then, after passing through the kidneys, gets metabolized to D3. D3 is the action molecule of vitamin D. And that's the one when you buy it over the counter, et cetera, it's almost always D3. And that's the one that, uh, you know, increases absorption of calcium through the gut and uh, introduces it to your bones to make for stronger bones. That's the same one that tweaks your immune system and allows you to fight off the coronavirus. Sir, does that answer your question? Yeah, so as a preventative, uh, what, how much should a person take a day? Yeah. Well, again, uh, the proper way to do it is with a blood level, but if you were just guessing and we're going into cold and flu season, I'd take 5,000 IU. Okay. And there's a risk in getting too much, right, as I recall? Oh, my goodness. Uh, that, they would scare us to death as medical students. <laughs> you were going to have a hypercalcemic crisis if you took too much vitamin D, which is why... Uh, in a glass of whole milk, you get 100, not 1,100 IU of vitamin D because they were afraid that the calcium in the milk plus 200 IU would cause sudden death of everybody. Uh, that was highly overblown. It can happen. It's more theoretical than real. In fact, I can't recall the first case, uh, the last case I've seen in the literature. I'm sure it is possible to happen. And somebody will do it, but uh, 
by and large, uh, overdosing of vitamin D is darn rare. By the way, the RDA, according to the uh, the uh, government and the websites uh, for vitamin D, is four to eight hundred IU's. And that and that uh, are yeah that is actually from the 1930s is when the government set that, which right. means it's uh, about 80 years out of pace of reality. And there's also no vitamin E, no vitamin D, or no vitamin E in the memory revitalizer. Is oh yes, correct? there is vitamin E. There is. Yes. Okay. And it's important that. Uh, most people don't understand. There are eight different natural forms of vitamin E. If you only take one of those eight, you actually overload the system and you do probably more damage than good. In Revitalizer, we have what are called mixed tocotrienols, which is seven of the eight forms of vitamin E. So it's A, absorbed and works and functions much better than a single form of vitamin E. As a matter of fact, if you're taking the standard vitamin E alpha tocotrienol uh, from your pharmacy, taking the revitalizer will actually help you with the overload of the uh, in the form that comes uh, from your drugstore. Caller, will that do it? Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. 550-5500, and we've got a couple of open lines. Caller, you're in the Kiva for Dr. William Summers. Yeah, you got me? Yep. Can you hear me? Okay, yeah. Uh, you're a smart guy. You have an economics background, right? I'm sorry. Say again, sir. I said uh, Eddie is a smart guy. He's got an economics background, yeah, right? Yeah, economics, political science, and I read all the time, sure. So don't you think we ought to be measuring these cases as an, an expected value? In other words, uh, a younger person being positive might be Point oh two percent dead, whereas an eighty-five-year-old might be three percent dead. Mm-hmm. And so, when we have more cases of the younger folks, we should calculate the total expected value of the whole mess and find out that actually we're doing a lot better. It's not the total cases; it's the spread right uh, across that age group as well. Yeah, I mean, volume obviously is always scary, right? And uh, when you look at the uh, websites for the statistics or you see that bar that's on Fox News or any of these, and they say, well, we're over 200,000 or we're over, you know, you get a mean uh, look at everything. And that's not helpful. As a proportion, uh, it's always important to put it in perspective. And those numbers, uh, when you drill down on that, as Dr. Summers was just putting it down, at, uh, I, said, I think you said three per thousand. Is that about right, uh, Dr. Summers? And yeah, about, it's about, and about 85% are asymptomatic. Well, and the, I think it's important to take a look at the false information uh, that we're getting in the, uh, the the lay press. And they talk about over 209,000 deaths uh, from uh, deaths related to, I, they phrase it, related to coronavirus. But at that it means actually deaths with it or of it. Well, if you look at those who died of it, that's only 6%. And uh, the CDC website revealed that about three weeks ago. So of that 209,000 deaths, only 12,000 in this raw number were due to the coronavirus. The rest of them, they died with it. Now, they may have had an automobile accident and had a positive coronavirus and they died with the coronavirus, but it was the automobile accident that did them in. Or they may have had a heart attack, but they tested positive. And so that's how the game is played. Only 6% of those reported as the death uh, from coronavirus are actually due from the coronavirus alone. 
And the death rate, yeah. uh, it should be said, is point zero 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 six two five percent If you're looking at a, a population of 320 million, to put that in perspective, um, from 1347 to 1354, uh, the Black Plague, uh, which uh, ironically, uh, or not ironically, was 666 years ago, uh, put off 75 to 200 million people uh, throughout Africa and Eurasia. Yeah, yeah for the best a while. way to filter that out, best way to filter out that noise is to look at the uh, all deaths. And so if there's an excess number of deaths because of coronavirus, it'll show up in all deaths. And if you look at the United States, we're actually lower than the last five years in total deaths through this period of time. So I don't hear anybody arguing that the coronavirus has saved X number of lives, which if you look at the data, it actually has. Well, and the other thing is, is that... Um Who's the scarf queen, uh, Burks, I think it is? She noted that the data coming out from the CDC has a 25% fudge factor. They overestimate by 25%. So, again, if you apply that to the 209,000 deaths that they're talking about, that means only 157,000 deaths are due to having coronavirus involved in any way. Then when you add the fact that it's only 6%, then it comes down under 10,000. So we are stopping an economy for 9,430 deaths. That's outrageous. That's ridiculous. And one more thing. Let me add uh, here to this, and this is all information directly from the CDC uh, itself, uh, as well as looking at the restriction uh, ranking data by state, which, of course, comes from Wall, uh, Wallet Hub. And uh, to, uh, to your point, caller, about the fact that, you know, this we shouldn't, be looking at it on a volume basis we should be looking at it as a percentage and does it actually have any impact if you look at these states that are just in the western region 22 states west of the mississippi did the coronavirus have a bigger impact on the overall death rate yes or no from 1999 through 2020 and the fact of the matter is no 2002 there were more deaths than there were in 2020 if you look at the deaths per age group all, that's across all age groups, 0 to 24, 25 to 44, 45 to 64, 64, 65 to 74, and 75 plus. If you look at that, uh, you're looking at some, and this is some really interesting numbers uh, on, on a case-by-case basis. 85 plus, you're averaging about 8.5 uh, per uh, 100 in the age group. And uh, with the coronavirus, you're looking at eight deaths per hundred in the uh, uh, 85 plus age, age group. So that's kind of an interesting and very telling perspective, even though it makes it seem like everyone's dying in every nursing home and every single person over the age of 80 is dying from the coronavirus. That is not the case. There were more people who died uh, per hundred in 2002 than died in 2020. And the same goes for Colorado. The same goes for Iowa. The same goes for um, California. The same goes for Minnesota, uh, Nebraska. Every single one. In fact, uh, Nebraska had a higher uh, overall death total in 2008. And the interesting point about Nebraska is they never shut down. They were uh, uh, in the age group that's most impacted, 85 plus. Uh, they were at uh, eight per thousand this year. They're at uh, seven and a half per thousand. So, oh, I'm per hundred. Excuse me, eight per hundred, seven and a half per hundred. So, th- there you go. Uh, to your point, uh, that's that's exactly. That, that's, so, coronavirus is our savior. <laughs> that's a wonderful message. That's right. Well, I thank you for your time, guys. All right, good stuff. Yeah. 
I, I wanted to point out, since we're sort of on the topic of the coronavirus, there is a thing called the Great Barrington Declaration, which I have signed as a physician and scientist. But lay people are invited to sign it. You go to gbdeclaration.org, as in Great Barrington Declaration. And it talks about a thing called focused protection, which is what the Swedes did. I'd like to read from that uh, for just a second, uh, where it says that the current lockdown policies are producing devastating effects on short- and long-term public health. They're talking to the dangers of the shutdowns and the continued partial shutdowns. The results are that you have lower childhood vaccination rates. You have worsening of cardiovascular disease outcomes when you shut down. You have fewer cancer screenings. You have deterioration of mental health. That's uh, substance abuse, domestic abuse, um, all kinds of addictions. And all of this leads to a greater excess mortality in the years down the road uh, for the working class and the younger members of society carrying the heaviest burdens. You need to get students back in school, and taking them out of school is a grave injustice. And so the Great Barrington uh, Declaration says that those who are not vulnerable should immediately be allowed to resume life as normal. Simple hygiene measures such as hand washing and staying at home when you're sick should be practiced by everybody to reduce and in, uh, get the herb, um, herd immunity threshold higher. Schools and universities should be open for in-person teaching. Sports should be resumed. Young, low-risk adults should work normally rather than from home. Restaurants and other businesses should be open. Arts, music, sports, and other cultural activities should resume without hindrance. People who are more at risk may participate if they wish, while society as a whole enjoys protection conferred by, upon the vulnerable by those who have built up herd immunity. So they're urging both healthcare professionals as well as general public members to sign this declaration, which you can get to at G is in George, B is in Boy, declaration.org. And I would invite everybody in the audience to sign, because uh, frankly, it's a logical and a better way to approach this illness rather than to be shutting people down and allowing 25% of a business. Or, I mean, I worry about a rattlesnake museum, whether it survived all of the harshness of these shutdowns. That was a great asset here in the community. And we're losing great assets of all kinds, not to mention terrific restaurants. All right, Dr. Summers, give us an update on some more COVID-19 facts very quickly. Yeah, uh, I want to point out that there has been a suppression of information by... Who knows? The uh, apparatchiks uh, in the government who are generally Democrat operatives or by big, uh, you know, uh, big Internet companies. Let me give you a couple little facts most people don't know. Dr. Robin Armstrong did a video on how he managed COVID-19 in nursing homes with hydroxychloroquine and zinc plus azithromycin. That was very early on. Uh, and he had a website uh, and a video on YouTube, but that was taken out by somebody, possibly big tech. Dr. Richard Bartlett of uh, Midland, Texas, reported successful treating 
with the uh, butacerone, that's the pomacort, plus zinc, plus clathromycin. Uh, and suddenly he was attacked by his hospital and his website disappeared. A local reporter broke the news and pasted his local story on Facebook, but that was removed, and it was replaced with a link to the WHO, who uh, is actually, I think I agree with uh, President Trump, that's an instrument of China. Here's what I want to point out. There have been 93 studies, 93, almost 100 now, uh, peer-review studies of hydroxychloroquine with favorable results. There's been one negative one, and that was the one in the Lancet, which was so flawed that it was withdrawn. And that's the one that the FDA pushes. Speaking of the FDA, they are hanging on to 60 million doses of hydroxychloroquine in what's called the Strategic National Stockpile, and they haven't released that. <clears throat> so the FDA gives legalistic reasons for continuing to discourage hydroxychloroquine and doing their hoarding, uh, but pressure needs to be brought to bear on them. Then there's the issue of remdesivir, and we hear a lot about that, but the backstory is is that uh, it is a patented drug, and it costs about $3,000 per treatment, and that the best that uh, they can do is shorten the hospital stay by two or three days. And who owns the patent? Well, it turns out that uh, Dr. Fauci and some of his buddies at the CDC hold the patent on remdesivir. At least that's the Internet story. Now, in terms of treatment updates, you know, people are constantly around the world looking at other ways to approach this. And an innovative one is ivermectin, which is an antiparasite. It is actually used for scabies and lice and roundworms. And it's found to be 100% effective in health workers in Argentina who are treating COVID patients when you add a food additive, which is called a carrageen. Isn't that amazing? So if you just let people, let the markets loose, people will find solutions. And so this uh, adding of uh, an antiparasite uh, may be an exciting thing. But in terms of drug development, Donald Trump uh, has really done magic. And that's the only thing I can say. Drug development from the, the chemist shelf to the pharmacist shelf prior to the 1962 uh, modification of FDA laws. It used to be two years. And in the ensuing time from 1962 to the present time, it takes 10 to 15 years to go from basic research to the pharmacist shelf. And the drug companies spend about $2 billion per copy, which may explain why when you go to your pharmacy and pick up a prescription, you faint when you see the price. But Donald Trump uh, has managed to truncate this to 1 to 1.5 years to get the COVID vaccine out. So instead of 15 years, 1.5 years, the vaccine will probably be distributed before the end of the year, according to Mr. Trump. And Mr. Trump isn't known in my book for lying. I do see a lot of lying misrepresentation on the other side of the political aisle. But the question is, there has clearly been suppression of information about COVID-19 coming from everywhere by they. Who's the they? Well, we know the Chinese were responsible for misinformation on COVID-19 really up until the present time. Uh, and 
you know, those people who favor the Chinese went right along with it and said, hey, go to the Chinese New Year celebration when it was pretty clear we had a pandemic coming our way. Um, and the traditional media has discouraged, and, and the traditional media loves to scare people. Uh, and so, you know, even the top-of-the-hour news on radio stations seems to have more propaganda than truth in it. So again, what is the inoculation for the partial truths and mistruths that we are receiving from our press? And the answer is samistat, which is a Russian word. It was a form of dissident activity across the Eastern Bloc back in the 70s and 80s and 90s, where individuals reproduced censored and underground makeshift publications, often by hand, and they passed these documents from reader to reader which is how you got to know what was the truth inside the old Soviet Union. Again, let's look at the statistics. We're told by the lay press, oh, we have about 210,000 deaths in America uh, that they credit to coronavirus. But if we take away the 25% fudge factor that the CDC admits to, that's 157,000 cases, not 210,000. And if we say, well, only 6% of those severe enough to get notation died, that's only 9,000 deaths. And so we have totally disrupted this economy for 9,000 deaths. Let's take a couple of calls, uh, Dr. Summers. Yes, sir. 550-5500. Call you in the Kiva. Go ahead for Dr. Summers. Yes, hello, Dr. Summers. Hey, uh, I'd like to get your opinion on a uh, provision in the New Mexico statutes, Okay. Whoops. Uh, that sounds like a legal question, but go ahead. Okay. Uh, well, it's it's in the New Mexico statute. It's in the uh, emergency uh, uh, public health emergency response act. Okay. Yeah, you can't comment and on that. Says, yeah, you can you can share, but there's nothing we can do to comment on on anything regarding the public health emergency, which has been overruled already uh, three times. Uh, you know that thing is as good as uh, the rule of law here in the state of New Mexico. Yeah. I know, I know the New Mexico courts are corrupt and incompetent, and they will rubber stamp anything the governor does. But it seems to me this provision, in theory, says her actions are unconstitutional, and that's, that's what I'm trying to get across. I gain the impression the only way to find justice is figure out a way to put it into a federal court and take it out of the state courts. Exactly. It is the only way. So you've got Michigan, you've got... Uh... Pennsylvania and New Jersey, and uh, they have already uh, ruled that all three of those states, all Democrat-run states and all very powerful governors, uh, have overrun um, their constitutional um, authority right. within their state. So I appreciate the, the phone call. Is there anything else? Uh, yeah, well, they've, they've, uh, they're completely ignoring, of course, the New Mexico statutes. But, yeah, the, the courts in New Mexico, like you say, are totally, totally uh, unreliable. Thanks for the call, caller. 550-500. Call for Dr. Summers, so hopefully a health-related question. Go ahead. Yes, Yes, it is about cancer. I'm just curious, uh, is cancer contagious? When somebody gets cancer, is it in, does it end up in their blood and their semen? Uh, that's a good question. It's something we've been searching for the answer for years. There are those who believe that there are certain cancers that you can associate with certain viruses, and, of course, viruses are passed from person to person. 
As a matter of fact, viruses, because they're fragments of DNA or fragments of RNA, can actually incorporate in the cell, in your cells, and theoretically you could pass that cancer on to your children. Um, so, so like, uh, is, now, is uh, do we have that? Well, we have it in feline leukemia is, for example, a viral illness that we know. Have we discovered that in humans? My suspicion is in time we will find those types of associations. Have we found it yet? Not that I'm aware of. So. I think uh, what he might be referring to, are you are you thinking of like HPV or something Oh, human like papilloma that? virus. Are you yes, thinking about that? Well, uh, Non-Hodgkin's non lymphoma type cancers. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking is that someday we will probably find a set of viruses that uh, you can... Uh, you know, get by contagion that will be associated with non-Hodgkin's or Hodgkin's lymphoma, both of them, and various other blood disorders such as leukemias. But we don't have that evidence in hand. We do have it in hand for cats, for example, uh, and which says to me, in time, we will have that. Yeah, so, I have a friend who's got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and he, he asked me if he, if he could spread it to a woman by having uh, a sexual contact with her. I don't have the answer for that. Um, of course, there are protections that we teach our children in kindergarten with bananas and such. Um, but uh, I think that uh, the treatments for the Hodgkin's, non-Hodgkin's lymphomas have become so efficient that um, we actually get cures for that sort of stuff. The problem is, is that down the road, once you're cured of your Hodgkin's, you probably get another cancer because the treatments themselves set up the next cancer you're going to get. So uh, I think that you're asking for personal decisions. There are some people who feel motivated to go into leprosy colonies, even though it's not terribly infectious. It's possible to catch leprosy after you've been there for a number of years. And some people, it's a calling, and they're willing to do that. And uh, I, I so I think that's a personal question. We don't have good medical evidence either way, though. Okay. I, ha I had one more quick question. There's a French virologist that says that this coronavirus is a, a mix of, uh, of, uh, of HIV and uh, malaria. The, the genome, he says, is of HIV and malaria. What, what have you heard about that? Poppycock. Huh? Thanks for the uh, phone no, no, call, the, caller. That's yeah. Uh, yeah, that's another way of saying uh, BS. There you go. H HIV is an RNA virus. Malaria is not. Malaria is a parasite. So that's mixing apples and oranges. So I'll have to say poppycock to that one. All right, caller, you're in the Kiva for Doctor Summers. Five fifty fifty five hundred. Go ahead. Is that me? Yes. Go ahead, sir. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what's McCoy? Uh, about a year and a half ago, I had an AFib. Incident through your experience, have you ever heard of somebody having an AFib incident and never having another one? Uh, AFib is the uh, a specific part of the heart, usually the right atrium, but it can be a right and left atrium under stress. Uh, it most frequently, in my experience, happens when people have unsuspected or untreated high blood pressure. How's your blood pressure running? And it has always been so. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> you can also get irritations in the rhythm centers of the right atrium. Right atrium is responsible for setting the heart pacing 
And uh, if there's something that goes wrong there, uh, it'll set up a rhythm of atrial fibrillation, which is rapid beating of the heart, 100, 120 beats a minute. And it's rather inefficient. When you get above 100 beats a minute, the heart does not uh, squeeze out all of the blood into the the blood system. And so uh, it's an inefficient form of rhythm. And uh, the usual treatment for that, and how long did the AFib last, sir? About six hours. And did they give you propranolol or some sort of beta blocker or Uh, digitalis uh, to bring the pulse uh, down? No, no. Uh, I went to an emergency room. Uh, They didn't give me anything other than IV. Uh, They gave me a prescription for uh, uh, a beta blocker. Yes. And... uh, That's an inoculation. That's a protection. Yes, sir. Go ahead. And... And uh, what's McCoy, uh, a blood thinner. I couldn't get the blood thinner uh, prescription uh, filled because uh, it was an emergency room doctor with my insurance, whatever. But they had made an appointment for two days to see a cardiologist. I went to the cardiologist. The guy had me do a EKG and says, I'll be back, and we're going to either have two uh, conversations. Comes back, and he goes, okay, uh, stay on this beta blocker, uh, 25 milligrams, uh, 12 and a half, 12 and a half, twice a a day. Sounds like Corey. And a a baby aspirin, low low Mm -hmm. dosage. Okay, I was uh, supposed to be called in two months from then, to see this doctor, nobody calls. I try calling. I don't know. It's wrong number. I make an appointment for another cardiologist, and when I go there, uh, he does an EKG, and uh, he wants to give me the uh, blood thinner. You know, I says, well, the other doctor had uh, said the uh, 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 low-dose aspirin was good enough. And he says, well, five years ago, that would have been, but not now. Eloquis is the stuff. It's about a $400 and, uh, a month drug. Right, right, right. And, uh, you know, and then I says to him, I says, listen, I have a very natural uh, low heart rate. You know, why do I need that? And, you know, and I start asking him, like, I'm talking to you now. Yes, and uh, he says, uh, listen, I have 25 other patients to uh, uh, see. Uh, uh, I got to go. I, I mean, that was it. Okay. I had my granddaughter, who's a, a registered nurse, and we went over my uh, all the blood work and everything, that uh, the medicals that I had gotten. And what she found was that I had low calcium when uh, I was in the hospital uh, with the thing. And so I just started taking, because I work out, I do fasting and whatever, and actually I was on a 36-hour fast when I had the AFib. So I I started taking electrolytes whenever I would fast, and I've never had, uh, what's McCoy, uh, an incident since then. And right after it, you know, I was trying to see if I can induce it. And I mean, uh, because one of the risk factors, well, risk factors, the first thing is age. 
And then it also had rigorous uh, uh, exercise, which I do all the time. You know, so I was pushing myself, you know, trying. I, I couldn't get to have another AFib into, you know, it sounds stupid, I'm trying to do it, but I'm also taking the electrolytes. So what my question is, have you ever heard of anybody having one and never again? Uh, yeah, I've seen that over the years. It's relatively rare. The point is you have yeah. an area in the right atrium uh, that is an atypical uh, pacemaker and is a little bit defective. At some point in yeah. time, if you get dehydrated again or if you uh, push your exercise uh, in your quest to have another episode of uh, AFib, could you feel it when you had it, incidentally? Uh, he's not on the line any longer. Oh, okay. So. A lot of times you can't even feel AFib. Yeah. Uh, but the point is that uh, it's, you know, he has a, probably a little area of the right atrium. Now, there are some new technologies, wonderful technologies, where you can go in and identify what's that small little batch of bad cells, and you can go in and freeze them out or burn them out, and you stop AFib going forward forever. Uh, so these are wonderful things, but... Uh, why the uh, the anti-clotting medicine, the Eliquis or the uh, aspirin? Well, because when the heart is in a fib, it really isn't moving much blood, and blood has a tendency to clot, and those clots can shoot like bullets up into the brain, and you can have small strokes. So thinning the blood is a good idea. You can do it with uh, baby aspirin. Uh, Eliquis has got some really fine data behind it. In the old days, we used Coumadin, which is a little awkward, requires a lot of blood tests, and uh, it can be dangerous. Uh, but the other thing is, if you want to go and say, well, what's what's the uh, equivalent on the health supplement side, I'm going to suggest garlic. Garlic is Mother Nature's form of aspirin. And uh, probably, again, the best is a brand name, Kyolic, and a wonderful story about the development of that product. But Kyolic has several different forms, and I would suggest that to you, sir. I hope that answers. And uh, thank you for your call. Yeah, thanks for the call. Uh, I do ask that callers uh, not uh, have so much preamble. Uh, we are interested in your condition when you come in, but we lose callers when they sit on hold and other people are trying to get to their call. So please... Come to a point uh, within uh, three or four minutes as quickly as possible. So that way we can go ahead and uh, hear directly and uh, from others uh, as well. 550-5500. Dr. Sabers, uh, what topics came up uh, in your read of science literature this week? <laughs> Is there such a thing? You go to my usual sources of scientific information, and they're so contaminated with global warming and uh, COVID-19 and uh, so it's it's hard to find real science anymore. But the first thing that comes across is the concept of bird brains. You know, you used to call someone who was an idiot a bird brain, right? But it's no longer a derogatory term. Nider et al. Uh, demonstrated that birds have an upper brain, a uh, supertentorial brain, a thinking brain similar to mammals. And uh, up until now, the bird brain scientists have felt that bird thinking occurred without a cerebral cortex, you know, which is like asking an earthworm to give you a Shakespearean sonnet. I mean, that's silly. Uh, but uh, there are two articles. Nider's uh, published his paper 
this last September the 25th, and he was supported by some work by Stocko et al., again in the September 25th uh, edition of Science, showing that the configuration of bird brain does show that there is a midbrain and there is a cerebral cortex or the equivalent of cerebral cortex so that birds are no more stupid than mammals are. And I I find that astonishing that uh, my colleagues in neuroscience would think that bird brain was somehow or another a lesser thing when they know that parrots can talk, then they watch the uh, migratory behaviors of birds and and think that they can do this all without an upper brain. Uh, so it's it's no surprise to me that, uh, that just the way they configure the upper brain is different in birds than it is in uh, mammals, but the skull structure of a bird is quite different than uh, a mammal anyway. But these are the same people who... Um, up until 1990, uh, you know, when I came out of medical school, you got one set of two billion neurons you were born with, and by golly, if you ever lost one, it was never replaced. And so if you took a shot of scotch, you just killed 10,000 neurons that would never come back. That was what I was taught in medical school. But in 1990, they were studying songbirds, and they were using a thymidine uh, dye uh, which only uh, shows up when there's brand new nerve cells being uh, made. And they proved that songbirds actually made brand new nerve cells. And at that moment in time, I said, well, of course, that's going to be us humans too. It took them another 15 years of stubborn resistance uh, to come up with the fact that we humans make up to a million brand new nerve cells, even at the age of 80, if you're dying from a severe disease like Parkinson's. So uh, the bird brain uh, thing, if you call someone a bird brain, you just say, hey, you're as good as us mammals. Uh, It's no longer an insult. I guess that's good. But let's talk about I have a sip of coffee here, but let's talk about the never-ending coffee debate. You know, libs that I've known over the years have tried to talk me out of my two-quart of coffee a day habit. But I enjoy my coffee, and so does, uh, well, did my mother and and all of her relatives. Uh, they were all heavy coffee drinkers. Well, there's a new article out in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society, which is a politically correct scientific journal, by Shabab and probably 20 colleagues in a collaborative study calling it Associations of Coffee and Tea Consumption with Survival to the Age of 90 Among older women. And that is a a, a phenomenal paper when you look at it and start studying the numbers. What they showed was that high coffee and tea consumption did not ensure you were going to hit 90 years old, but it was, according to the authors, reassuring because it didn't appear that coffee or tea caused health issues uh, the way uh, most lib articles you know, try to say if you drink too much coffee, all of a sudden you're going to die from some malady such as COVID-19. It's simply untrue. But actually, if you look at that study, my gosh, uh, you know, that was a Cecil B. DeMille, Busby Berkeley, Hollywood production uh, orchestrated by the National Heart and Lung and Blood Institute spending tens and tens of millions of dollars enriching the budgets everywhere from the University of Würzburg in Germany to Harvard to the University of Indiana 
to the University of Southern California and UCLA. They had 10 major institutions getting money from this, the Old Boys Club in Science, proving that which they already knew. And they followed women from their 60s and 70s to the age of 90, and they quantified how many cups of coffee or how many cups of tea did you drink decaffeinated or caffeinated. And they looked at uh, all-cause mortality, and they came to the conclusion that drinking coffee or tea didn't make you live longer, but it certainly didn't cause any problems. Well, there was a previous study in 2008 uh, There was much more legitimate research. It was by Lopez Garcia, and he looked at 86,000 nurses who drank heavy cups of coffee, uh, eight, ten cups per week. Me, I drink that much in the morning. Anyway, what they found was with high consumption of coffee, a lower all-cause mortality. That would be from death from uh, physical activity, uh, death from heart disease, and et cetera, et cetera. And that was independent of whether they smoked or not, whether they were chubby or not, whether they were couch potatoes or reactive, or whether they were on hormone therapy. And hormone therapy back in 2008 was largely dictated by big pharma, not the um, bioidentical hormones, which are more prevalent today. So the point is, is that the early, more pure science on coffee shows that it lowers all-cause mortality risk. Other papers that are a little more legitimate show it pushes back the onset of diabetes in people. So this, coffee up. So okay. coffee up, That's folks. what you need to do. We got uh, a few phone calls. Uh, would you yeah, like to take those, it. or do you want to? No, we don't. Let, I oh, love okay. talking All right. folks. It, it, it helps you. me out a great deal. Call you in the Kiva for Dr. Summers. Hey, good, uh, good afternoon, Eddie and Dr. Summers. Eddie, I tell everybody about your station uh, throughout the state. Oh, thanks. You're wonderful. Yeah, and Dr. Summers, I've been using your product for two years or more now. Well, and thank I love you. It. Oh, yeah. So I had two questions. Radio frequencies. I think they might call on something else now, and you're just talking about nerve regeneration. So what do you think about uh, radio frequencies for pain, like in the cervical or in thoracic area? Um. I'm not, you know, I've not been terribly impressed with, um, you know, like tens, for example, which is a little more of a shock type thing. The radio frequencies, um, not so much. One of the things I wanted to bring up today is a breakthrough in Parkinson's disease, where you use near infrared light to help uh, nerve cells, uh, and it's protective in terms of retina to use. Uh, amounts of uh, near-infrared light to protect the retina from, say, toxicity from uh, methanol. Uh, so I think that there are some things going in this direction. I have not really studied the literature on radio. Now, how is the radio frequency that you're talking about delivered? Well, so they use a lack of probe, and they go into the nerve and the spine where you're having pain issues, and then they basically cauterize that nerve back that seems to be hot, and supposedly, you know, 12 to 14 months of, of relief, and I've had it done twice in the uh, thoracic and maybe twice in the cervical. I'm kind of 50-50 on it. Yeah. Um, what they're talking about then is uh, ablation, in other words, yeah, killing yeah. killing the nerve. Right. Um, 
Actually, uh, I have a different approach to that. And you were in the mid-thoracic spine was where the issue is? Yes. And did you do this lifting refrigerators, helping your neighbor move? How did you do this? Well, no, actually, I had a grand mal seizure just out of the blue uh, several years ago, and then I had multiple compression fractures in my back. Okay. And so then they went in to fix it, uh, and I don't think they call this anymore, but vertebioplasty. Yeah, they go in and sort of fix the uh, vertebra, which means you don't have the flexibility you used to have. Right, and I didn't know I was going to lose some uh, height. I'm a little over 6'2", but I'm not anymore. <laughs> yeah, but, they, uh, they help you with that height issue. <laughs> yeah, so it dropped a little bit. You know, and I, I think when they, you know, basically they just glued me back together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and they use and little rods and supporting rod, type right. things, which are really actually foreign bodies and forms of metal uh, right. that the body doesn't react too much to. But I have a a different thought process in looking at these types of things. A lot of those surgeries in general fail or don't do well, but it sounds like you got some good result out of it, and that's great. You know, I, like a, a 50-50 with that as well. I just, I, you know, I didn't, not, you know, I don't feel normal again. I just don't think they put me together well. But, you know, I've lived with it now. It's been over 10 years or so. So, But I've had a couple of radio frequencies in there. Let me let me talk about where is the source of pain. The actual answer is it's in the skin, not below the skin, not oh, above wow. the skin, but the actual nerve endings are in the skin. They're called C-fibers. Those C-fibers then go to the spine, and they connect with some nucleuses in the spine that send a signal to the brain saying, pain, pain down here. Uh, and there's also a reflex in at the spinal level, where it comes back out the motor side, which is the dorsal, the uh, ventral side, and it sends a signal to the muscles underneath the skin that cause those muscles to contract, which then move the sensors in the skin, which makes for a localized seizure. Okay, can uh-huh. you visualize what I'm saying here? Yes, absolutely. All right, so one of the things that I do is use a... Uh, a process that the Germans came up with called neurotherapy, where you actually inject lidocaine into the skin, not okay. through, not below the skin, not above the skin. You don't rub it on the skin. You actually inject it into the layers of the skin. And what you do is directly address those nerve endings that are sending the pain signal. It blocks so those. Them, in other words. Yeah, it blocks those. And in my opinion, stops the little seizure-like phenomenon going on from the skin to the spine back to the muscles underneath the skin, pulling the skin, causing it to send a signal to the spine, sending a back signal to the muscle, and you can see a little localized seizure. When I put the lidocaine in, I get results that are remarkable to me because we know the lidocaine is going to be in your body about an hour or so, just like when you get an injection from for a dental procedure but what i see is relief of that pain for three months a year (laughs) two years in some cases uh you might uh you know come into the office we could look at that and see if that might be beneficial for you but that it's a non-surgical procedure you're just injecting a little lidocaine at certain spots in the skin and i I have a guy who's an airline executive and uh, he couldn't play golf. He had so much problem with his thoracic spine. We did one injection three years ago. He's back playing golf, doing well. That was three oh. years. 
three years uh, last. Well, so now, does everybody get their it. result? No, <laughs> but it's yeah. worth a try. It's worth a try. Hey, I always listen to you on Saturdays again, Eddie. Love your station. Thank Y'all you have so a great much. afternoon, okay? All right, good stuff. Mm-hmm. 550, um, 5500. Um, <clears throat> a couple of text messages coming in. Uh, this one from David. Question for Dr. Summers. How should you take all these supplements? All at once or spaced out during the day? Thank you. I think that they're referring then to the memory revitalizer. Uh, for those in the audience who are purists, uh, probably the best way is to take your memory revitalizer in two separate dosing. Uh, at six a day, there would be three in the morning and three later on in the day. Now, myself, I'm not a purist. I'm a little sloppy. I know if I... Uh, take three in the morning, I get so busy, I just won't get back to taking the other three. So I just take six in the morning. Um, and I do take extra vitamin C, but that addresses a different issue. That addresses some cardiovascular issues that my family has. Um, but uh, spreading them out uh, is something that's advisable. It's nice, but not everybody has the discipline to do it. Uh, now, in terms of spreading out for vitamin C, that is a water-soluble vitamin that has to be spread out uh, because it would be like taking uh, what you were going to eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and having it for breakfast. You're going to be hungry later on, even though you ate a huge uh, breakfast meal. Vitamin C, which is the water-soluble vitamin, if you took it all at breakfast, you're going to be out of your vitamin C by dinner time. So that one you have to spread around. Uh, but vitamin D, for example, and all of the fi- fat-soluble uh, items, and most of the herbals once a day is plenty good. I hope that answers. Uh, that was a text uh, coming in. Uh, Dr. Summers, uh, we solved the uh, coffee debate. Uh, let's start to wrap things up, but before we do, we'll let everybody know that Dr. Summers is available. It's a private pay clinic, alternative health clinic, with innovative approaches to non-opiate control of chronic pain syndrome, alternative approaches to cardiovascular health, anti-aging and bioidentical hormones, memory and brain dysfunction issues, and second opinions. Just mention me, The Rock of Talks, 25% discount, or call direct, 878-0192. That's 878-0192. And also you can pick up your memory revitalizer in your life. Imagine at local stores, including Sharon Care Pharmacy in Belen, Duran Central Pharmacy, Sam's Region Pharmacy, Highland Pharmacy, Best Buy Pharmacy, Manal Pharmacy, Evergreen Normal Market, and Moses Country Store. Village Apothecary and Cedar Crest as well. Vitasprings.com, MemoryRevitalizer.net, or dial direct, 800-606-0192. We thank uh, all of you who have been uh, calling, and uh, you guys have busy have been busy calling uh, Dr. Summers uh, every week. Dr. Summers, let's uh, wrap it up. We've got psychology. We've got oh, uh, Parkinson's, I, I do all this. sorts of things. I want to do this one. This is the 2020 Ignoble Prizes. As in Nobel Prize, they have a mock Nobel Prize called the Ig Nobel Prizes, and they give it in quite a few different categories. But the one, the 2020 Ig Nobel Prize in psychology, went to a couple of Canadians, uh, Miranda Giacomini, uh, in the university in Edmond, Alberta, and another guy, uh, Nicholas Rule, at the University of Toronto. They plucked the dishonor for their study of distinctive eyebrows and psychology. Isn't that a great topic to get a, an award for? What they found is is that 
distinctive eyebrows are a sign of narcissism. Grandiose narcissists desire recognition and admiration, and it's rendered to those with distinct eyebrows. And uh, distinct eyebrows facilitate the ability to notice the person, recognize them, and remember them, and narcissists want that. And, of course, this brings to mind, what is it, Frida Kahlo? You remember her, the artist from Mexico? Yeah, I married the to Unibrow. Diego yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you know my my response to that is, hey, a little bit of uh, narcissism. What's wrong with it? You know, uh, Frida Kahlo did. She had a miserable life. She did wonderful things. Uh, I believe our president has distinctive eyebrows, and he's doing wonderful things. A little bit of narcissism. Maybe everybody ought to pay a little more attention to their eyebrows. <laughs> huh. So uh, the ignoble award goes to Canada for the uh, connection of distinctive eyebrows and narcissism. <laughs> Very funny. What about phosphine? Phosphine. Phosphine. Uh, phosphine. PH3? Yeah, that actually, that right? that's a compound that's only made where there's life forms. And uh, we do have a little blip that appeared in science uh, this last week that showed from microwave signals from the planet Venus Two separate telescopes detected the presence of phosphine on the planet Venus, meaning there might be life on Venus, uh, and it might be an inhabitable planet. Actually, what I know of that planet, it sounds pretty toxic to me, and it's pretty darn close to the sun. I think it runs temperatures in the 400-degree range, which I would find eh, that would make Phoenix look like a garden spot. Uh, but there's always hope, right? Anyway, that's the the story on phosgene. It's been discovered on the planet Venus, and it is a compound that suggests life forms. Uh, one of the things that uh, I have uh, in my gene, and you did sort of refer to this a little bit earlier, whether or not uh, there are various things that uh, you can inherit or are contagious, two different things uh, for sure, but uh, sort of the same way of transmission if you really think about it, but... Uh, Parkinson's disease is uh, comes through uh, my my family. Yeah, Parkinson's disease is um, well. First, we should explain what it is, and uh, it is a long-term degenerative uh, disorder of the central nervous system that mainly affects the motor system. The symptoms emerge slowly as the disease worsens. Non-motor symptoms, I'll just you know throw them in a a wastebasket called Brady symptoms, slow symptoms. They become common. Uh, and the more obvious early symptoms are tremor, rigidity, slowness of movement, difficulty walking. Then they begin to have problems thinking and behavioral problems. And about 60% of them go on to have coarse dementia. Uh, and a good 60 to 80% of them become depressed and highly anxious. Uh, but uh, there are more recent studies saying that's only 30%, but a good percent of them do. The disease was first described by James Parkinson, who took a single case and described it in detail in 1817. You know, I've had single cases that I've found unique, and I try to get them published, and the editors will say, oh, my goodness, that's only a single case. We don't publish single cases. But I want to point out to the audience that Parkinson's disease came from a single case reported in 1817. 
Alzheimer's disease was from a single case reported by Alice Alzheimer in 1906. So single cases can be extremely important in the medical literature. Um, and then everybody is enamored with the Busby Berkeley uh, multi-center uh, double-blind placebo crossover uh, pristine studies. I, I can point to severe flaws in that study model. Uh, so, uh, you know, there is a place in the literature for single cases. But the main pathology in Parkinson's is damage in the basal ganglion of the brain. That's in the midbrain. And there's an area called the substantia niger, which means the black substance. And it turns out that the uh, neurons in the substantia niger are rich in dopamine, which is a black-colored compound. And so when you look at the brain on gross dissection, this little ganglion stands out as the black nucleus, uh, the substantia niger. And that's where the pathology of Parkinson's shows up the most you'll get a loss of up to 70% of the neurons in the substantia niger, and that's directly related to the tremor and the bradykinesia, the slowdown. But also when you examine other areas of the brain, you'll find a, a, a peculiar little cell called Lewy bodies. And that's an accumulation of a protein called alpha-synuclein. And that one is associated with uh, frankly, a dementia in a Parkinson's patient. And also, when you look carefully under the microscope, you'll see that the astrocytes, the little glial cells that feed the nerve cells, have died. But there are an increased number of what are called microglia. And microglia in the central nervous system are like white cells that are in there trying to wipe out some sort of toxin or virus or bacteria or something. So in areas where there are Lewy bodies, then they also have the uh, more classical uh, lesions that you see in Alzheimer's with uh, plaques and tangles. You will see death of astrocytes, the feeding, uh, nourishing the cells in the central nervous system, and an increase in the inflammatory cells called microglia. Um, anyway, there's some exciting news in the area of Parkinson's that I wanted to announce, and it's use of what's called near-infrared light. The uh, thought process in this began about 10 years ago at the University of Sydney in Australia when a friend of John Mithrofans uh, said, hey, uh, when we look at retinal cells of the eyes, we can protect them with near-infrared light against toxins such as methanol. Well, he took a mouse model of... Uh, Parkinson's disease, which is giving a specific toxin to mice. In the mice, you get most of the symptoms you see in Parkinson's. And what he did was he projected near-infrared light into the brain of the mice, and it protected them from the neurotoxin. So then this Australian went to a buddy of his, uh, Cecily Moreau, and she implanted these uh, little devices to deliver near-infrared light, light, if you will, into macaw monkeys. They put them in about 20 monkeys, and better than 50% of them were symptom-free from the toxin that causes Parkinson's. So the next pilot study went to humans. And the humans, uh, some people in Tasmania, which is actually an area of Australia, it's an island. Now, they have Tasmanian devils there, incidentally. 
But anyway, so these people in Tasmania developed a helmet that was lined with LEDs, and they put it on the heads of the Parkinson's patients. And their logic was, well, the uh, light would cause better blood flow. It would improve cytochrome C oxidase, which is in the mitochondria of nerve cells, and uh, you know, tied into the energy metabolism. And lo and behold, the Parkinson's patients could think better. Their facial expressions were better. Their moods were better. But it really didn't do much for the tremor. It didn't do much for the overall slowing of the body function. So now comes the Benabid trial, and that one's just getting started. And what they're doing is the same thing they did in the mice and the monkeys. They're surgically implanting thin laser cables into early Parkinson's disease patients, implanting these little fiber optic cables into the midbrain near the substantial niger and lighting it up, if you will. And the problem is, is that if you're going to have this treatment work, you've got to catch Parkinson's early on because once it becomes fully symptomatic, half of the dopamine cells in the substantia niger are gone. They're dead. Um, anyway, the take-home here, the important take-home point is there's hope in the future for Parkinson's disease, Eddie. Really we got a few old. phone calls here waiting for you to wrap the show. Call sure. your Nick Eva for Dr. Summers. Hey, good morning, or afternoon now. Hey, uh, what do you know about myasthenia gravis? I had uh, went into a crisis situation with it this year, and I, up until a year ago, when my daughter was diagnosed, I didn't know we had it in the family. Now, what can you tell me about it? Uh, right now, I'm going through plasma uh, exchange. Well, that's and, not. I've only seen one case in almost 50 years of practicing medicine, so it's not an area I've read in much. Of course, uh, what they used to do was give neostigmine or uh, pilocarpine or various cholinergic agents to help it. And it is familial, as you've pointed out. Uh, it is an area where you know what the target is, and so there are things you can do. In actual fact, uh, you could use some Alzheimer's uh, drugs uh, to improve the myasthenia gravis, uh, such as rivastigmine. But that would be between you and your physician. You say that, uh, uh, what are they using at the present time? Uh, goodness, I can't remember the name of it right now, but uh, I am taking uh, two medications for it, and I, uh, unfortunately I can't recall the name. Uh, and I'm going twice a week to have a plasma exchange. And which is actually albuminin. Albumin is a uh, 60 kilowatt uh, kilodalton uh, protein that's made by the liver that uh, uh -huh. actually is important in carrying various uh, substances around in the blood for delivery to the periphery. Uh, so the purpose of the plasma is to get more albumin or to take it out? To get more. To get They're more. Taking out their they're taking out the, the plasma and replacing it with albumin. Interesting. Okay. Well, and, that would point towards the liver. I would think that there were, might be some ways you could sort of tweak the liver to make it uh, create more albumin. Anyway, uh, I'll do a little research on that, sir, if you don't mind. Sure. I'll be listening in every, every Saturday. I'll hear it. Yeah, you give me an opportunity to catch up on this. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. 
All right, uh, a couple of text messages. Uh, no more time for calls. Dr. Summers, uh like to talk uh, very quickly about your product one more time. Uh, Judith text in. Last week you mentioned seizures, diabetes, and no caffeine. I got three words, but missed the connection. Could you touch back? Yeah, this is something that we uh, did uh, hacks, um, you know, alternative health hacks for seizures last week, and uh, it was so popular we got a several requests to repeat it. Uh, some seizure medicines deplete the body's nutrients for vitamin B12, B9, which is folic acid, vitamin D, and calcium. What we found is that people with seizures need to check their magnesium level, their manganese level, and they need to take supplemental magnesium, manganese, copper, zinc, and selenium, all of which, incidentally, are in memory revitalizer. Uh, we do know that a certain diets can prevent seizures, such as the so-called ketogenic diet, which is a diet that's very high in fat. 87% of the calories come from fat as opposed to protein or carbohydrates. In other words, you're eating a lot of coconut oil. We also know that uh, if you increase vitamin B6 pyridoxine, just for no peculiar reason, uh, if you just simply increase the vitamin B6, you decrease the number of seizure events. This was a study of 43 patients where 61% of them had reduced seizure frequency on vitamin B6 alone, just in a higher dose. Now, vitamin E is helpful, and it, of course, is a component of revitalizer. But in a study of 24 children, there was a 60% reduction in seizures by simply adding vitamin E, certainly in higher doses than we use. Um, so there, there are certain hacks. There are certain things you can do to your diet. There are certain things you can do to your supplements that help you with seizure disorders. And certain of the uh, anti-seizure medicines, most notably Dilantin, deplete you of certain vitamins and nutrients. Uh, I'm not sure that Kepra does that, but certainly Dilantin and Fetobarbital do. Anyway, I hope that answers, sir. Oh, uh, that was a or text that, uh, yeah. that came in. Uh, Dr. Summers, tell us very quickly about uh, your wonderful products. Well, uh, Memory Revitalizer was something we put together over a 7- to 10-year period back in the 90s. First came out in 2000. Our target, according to the patent, is neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. But, of course, that is uh, to satisfy the U.S. Patent and Trade Office where you must demonstrate a, uh, a purpose for your invention. And <clears throat> we do have this uh, supplement patented which is very unusual for a health supplement. But at any rate, when you go to market, you have to work under FDA rules, and FDA rules say basically you can't claim to fix anything. Uh, you can use vague and ambiguous terms like good for neurologic health, good for uh, cellular health, which is code word for, uh, you know, uh, prevents cancer, or you can say good for cardiovascular, but you cannot say... This prevents heart attacks, strokes, and, uh, you know, emboli, uh, because otherwise the FDA will take your product off the market. So all we can say is, hey, we have a 34-component complex antioxidant with synergistic uh, activities between the 34 components that is incredibly robust. We can say it's anti-aging. We definitely have done two studies showing it improves memory. And it, it improves cardiovascular markers. 
and that's that's the story. <laughs> Don't forget, folks, uh, Dr. Summers is actually taking patients right now, and it's as easy as picking up the phone and dial directly, 878-0192. That's 878-0192, and he will give innovative approaches to non-opiate control of chronic pain, alternative approaches uh, to, we've well, got to make sure, see where my uh, sound is coming up. Holy moly, is we had, uh, I got to tell you, thank you, everybody, uh, today for uh, chiming Great in uh, today. There was uh, 13 phone calls uh, here this afternoon, so that was uh, really good. I really appreciate uh, you guys uh, checking in this afternoon. All right, non-opiate control of chronic pain, alternative approaches to cardiovascular health, anti-aging and bioidentical hormones, memory and brain dysfunction issues, and second opinions, all from Dr. Summers. Just mentioned me, the rock of talk. Get a 25% discount. Pick up the phone and dial direct. Eight seven eight zero one nine two. Thank you, Doctor Summers. Thank you. Uh, it's been a wonderful show, and I really want to thank the audience. You guys are terrific. All right, back next week, same time, same place. Here in the Kiva, stay tuned. Uh, up next, Dan Butterfield. abq.fm k229cl 93.7 fm and am 1600 kiva albuquerque